It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. My guest this week is Mike Lazat of American Meadows. He's better known as the Seed Man because of his passion for planting wildflower gardens. Mike is also the author of the book, Mini Meadows, Grow a Little Patch of Wildflowers Anywhere Around Your Yard. He's been featured in Joe Lample's Growing a Greener World, and he lives and gardens in Vermont with his family. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks, Christy. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you know, our paths have crossed over various garden conferences and trade shows. And you graciously moderated my Q&A session on the Great Grow Along, which was this really great virtual garden conference where you also did a talk on mini meadows. But before we get to your passion, let's talk about your journey. Your path to gardening started really young, didn't it? It did, yes. I I was, I think, 13 or 14 at the time. And uh, a friend of mine, I, I was maybe a freshman in high school, a friend of mine had been working for this small business and they happened to have a large shipment of flower seed um, that was being delivered. And at the time, they didn't have a, a typical loading dock. So they literally had to unload the truck one bag at a time. So they needed some help. I went over and started um, unloading the truck and I must've done something right. So they said, Hey, can you come back? We've got some odds and ends things to do. And um, I found myself packing seed on the weekend and I guess kind of the rest is history. Um, At the time it was the business had been founded by Ray and his wife, Charlotte Allen. It was a a typical family run small business. It was predominantly they had done, they did mail order. They started with a mail order catalog. And then they also had a, a summer tourist attraction. So people would come from all over new England um, and visit and, and buy seed, and then they would be doing the mail order. And I really, uh, two things kind of s- struck a chord with me. Number one, kind of the business dynamic of of it, but also two, obviously the horticultural and the flower side of it. And um, and I guess you know the rest is kind of history. I, I went on and through my high school and college years, and then um, I think it was uh, late two thousand six, two thousand seven. The business obviously had matured. It, through the years and um, had gone online um, with the the dawning of the internet back in the late nineties and really took off. And um, it was clear to me that Ray and Shai, they, they, they had grown it to a certain level and they were getting older and and were looking to possibly um, figure out what their exit strategy might be. So I approached them in the fall of 2007, I think, and asked if they would give me the first opportunity to try to purchase the company and um, that's when I partnered up with my um, business partner, Ethan, and put a business plan together, all that kind of stuff, and became owners of American Meadows in the G- January of 2009. And we started with six of us. And we've gone on to uh, not only own and operate American Meadows, we acquired High Country Gardens in 2016, and then Landreth Seed Company in 2018. Oh, you guys bought Landreth. Oh, that's so heartening because I know they were suffering really badly. So wonderful. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Um, So yeah, we, um, as you had mentioned, they'd kind of, I'll say, fallen off the map a little bit. And um, we had heard that there was maybe an opportunity to to try to um, purchase the assets and, and maybe try to bring it back alive. And and we we um, we kind of put an offer in, and, and it was accepted. And so we acquired them in, in 2018, and we relaunched this. We relaunched a, a website in 2019, 
But to be honest, we're still trying to kind of figure out the direction and where we want to go and, and, and really stay true to the roots and the uniqueness of the brand. Because obviously, as, as you're aware, I believe, and don't hold me to this, it is the fourth oldest like operating business in the United States dating back to like 1784. It's, it's got such a unique history. And what was really cool is a part of some of the assets we acquired with some of the old catalogs. Oh, which their been, catalogs are yeah, so beautiful. Yes. Yeah, really, really neat. So we're really excited. Um, as busy as we've been, we haven't quite gotten to prioritizing, you know, the next steps to it, but we're excited to, to, to really kind of um, explore it and, and see what we can do with it. So, um, so yeah, and kind of getting back to now, I think last check we have over, we started with six of us in 2009 and last check we are at 103 employees spread from Vermont to New Jersey to Clinton, Utah, which is where we own and operate a greenhouse that we operate and fulfill for a high country gardens brand. So, it's been quite a journey over the last um, 13 years. And um, I think specifically for me, having only one job in my entire life, <laughs> kind of unique. You don't come across too many people. And I just love it. Um, I think early on when I was a teenager, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. When the flower side really kicked in for me, I think I was 17 or 18 and I had been reading up and learning. And I, I guess I got promoted to work in the retail seed shop that we had. So you'd be answering questions and stuff. And of course, at that age, it's really nervous. Like, did I know my stuff? Was I going to give the right information? And so people would ask me the questions and I'd answer them. And we did have a quite a, a good local following. And these people would come in every year. And I think it was to have been my second year that spring, I had some guests come back and they're like, Mike, we just want to say how excited we and how excited we were for our meadow and how much we enjoyed it. Thanks to your knowledge and expertise. And something that really clicked for me as far as, you know, the enjoyment that somebody gets out of gardening and the fact that I can share my knowledge and, and expertise with them and make that connection. It was really, really powerful and it really stuck with me at a young age and you know as i've been able to share that through the years obviously with the book and and with the company and everything talking to i mean i lost count hundreds of thousands of gardeners all around the country um it, it's it's unique and very fortunate and and i just really i love it i i enjoy it tremendously and um it's been quite a journey it's a lot of fun um and i wouldn't uh, i wouldn't change it for anything well, clearly you are passionate about your work and <laughs> have had one job for your whole life. I think that's great. Yeah. Now you live in Vermont. Can you describe your garden space so our listeners can kind of imagine themselves in your yard? <laughs> yes, certainly. So being in the Northeast and in Vermont, as you can imagine, I believe we are in a zone four. Um, we are in Northern Vermont. So we're unique in the fact that we, there's a lake here called Lake Champlain. And so we tend to stay a little bit warmer than some other parts of the state, like in the North uh, East corner, it can be even colder than that. So we have a relatively short growing season. I would say ballpark, it can start. And of course, depending on if you're direct sowing or starting it indoors, our growing season will range from say May to end of September, early October. Mm -hmm. So it's relatively short. And so I think a lot of tips and tricks on how do you extend the season? And 
we might talk a little bit about that, but very hard winters, um, lots of snow, freezing ground, which is which is all, all good stuff, but things you want to be aware of, especially when you are planning and getting into gardening and whether it's doing a meadow or vegetable gardens or planters, um, you certainly want to be aware of that stuff and understanding zone hardiness and stuff like that, I think is really important for, for people gardening in the Northeast to, to set them up for the best chance to succeed. But my gardens on my house is kind of a typical suburban plot. I think we're on a half acre and, mm -hmm. but I incorporate perennial gardens. I have my mini meadow, of course. Um, I continue to expand my vegetable gardening. I, I like veggies. I wouldn't say I'm an expert at the vegetable side, but it's just so much fun experimenting. Um, and so kind of we incor incorporate a few different types of gardening, and I do find myself expanding them every year. And I will say in our suburban setting that we're in, we get a lot of foot traffic, a lot of neighbors. So we have walkways and stuff. So we have a lot of hikers and runners and, and bikers and stuff. And I'm always um, surprised, pleasantly surprised by the positive um, comments that we get from um, the gardens that we grow and the vegetable gardens, because we're on a corner lot. And so we have people coming in multiple directions and it's a lot of fun. It's, it's rewarding. I give away, I think last year during the pandemic, I shared my vegetable harvest with probably over two dozen um, neighbors around the, the neighborhood. Um, Cause again, it's only myself and my wife, Rachel and my daughter, Sadie. So in my vegetable garden is about 800 square feet so not huge but certainly yields uh, a pretty good amount of, of of crops and was able to share them so it's a lot of fun and rewarding and people always they're walking by like oh we love how your garden changes during the year and you start with tulips and then i've got dahlias in the mini meadow and the veggies so it's a lot of fun in that setting you know and i think even last year someone came by and said you inspired me and i'm doing my veggie garden this year and this has been a lot of fun so it's nice to know that people I've, well, I find that neighborhoods come together when someone's gardening, especially in their front yard. I see that a lot with my clients when we put in front yard gardens, they, they bring out everybody and it becomes this really a greater community. So that's wonderful. Uh, now you are an evangelist about meadows. So let's talk about that. What is the benefit or why should people plant meadows? Sure. Great question, Christy. Meadows, um, a lot of benefits to putting in a meadow. Um, number one, it can be quite cost effective when you compare it to putting in plugs or plants. Um, there's obviously the environmental benefits of it, um, the supporting of pollinators as well. The say lower maintenance, you know, establishing a meadow, it's not, it doesn't near, need the care that let's say a vegetable garden may need. So I think the list, it's, it's quite substantial, but I think, again, I think the ease, um, the bang for your buck kind of, you know, putting, spending nine ninety five for a quarter pound of seed um, and being able to do a 50 or hundred square foot plot um, can be really impactful. And I also think too, just the word meadows kind of clearing up some of the, the initial first thoughts that when the term meadows comes up, people first, their mind goes that to the fact that you may need a large area. And you couldn't be further from the truth there. The way I've defined meadow or the word meadow through the years is it doesn't matter if you have a planter box or an acre, you know, just being able to sprinkle some seed to do five, 10 square feet, 20, whatever, um, and create this place of beautification, flowers, 
um, you're, is a positive thing for the environment and, and, um, and brings a lot of joy to people. So um, making sure they don't get overwhelmed when they first heard, hear the term meadows and the fact that, well, hey, I only have this small patch on my lawn. Hey, that's perfect. You know, it sounds like a perfect spot. Right. And that was my next question is how much room is enough for it to be effective for pollinators? Because I've heard some things, you know, different things. What, what's your opinion on that? I mean, in my opinion, I, I'm not a stickler for a neat, you know, saying that you need maximum square footage. Because again, when when a bee comes up, like I had some early pollinators come up to my tulips, which, hey, as long as you're putting something out there and if it's, you know, a planter box or something with, with some variety in it, um, to me, that's beneficial. You know, you cannot go wrong with it. It's not doing any harm. Um, and so the more plants and the more flowers and the more habitat, although one might argue, hey, doing a planter isn't exactly habitat. Hey, in my opinion, it is. And so why wouldn't you, you know, the more we can do to put flowers and beautify and, and put some food sources out there, the better, um, you know, place we're going to be in. So. so what are some of your favorite wildflowers to plant and why? Sure. So I think I will put this into a couple buckets. And this is really important when wanting to establish a meadow or, or plant some flowers is understanding life cycles first. And, and what I mean by that, obviously, is you have your annuals, you've got your perennials, and you also have that bucket of, of biennials. But for this conversation, it's, hey, what are some of my, or, or some of the more popular and fun to grow annuals? Annuals, we know they're going to be quick color. They're going to bloom and complete their life cycle all in one growing season. So it's important to understand that. Some of the more popular ones, the zinnias, the sunflowers, you've got poppies, you've got borage. Um, those tend to be some of the really popular ones that customers say at American Meadows or ones that I like to grow. Um, they're fun. As I mentioned, my daughter, Sadie, she's 10. Planting annuals is a ton of fun because they're quick, big, bold colors, big flowers. We do we, we play lots of games like sowing different varieties of sunflower. How quickly do they grow? How quickly do they grow in a day? There's so many fun things there. So those tend to be some of the popular annuals. Now, on the perennial side, lots of fun things there. Um, the monardas, the asters, the asclepias, the echinaceas, the lupins, the chrysanthemums. I mean, the list goes on and on. I think specifically here where I am in the Northeast, getting back to where I live in my suburban neighborhood, we've been on our property now for about 10 years. And I noticed naturally we had a couple uh, asclepias, um, common asclepias pop up on the property. And of course, they're extremely beneficial to the monarchs. And as the years went by, they kept expanding. And I'm not sure my next door neighbor likes the look per se, but I've basically created a full establishment of Asclepius. I probably have over a hundred plants. Wow. And fortunately last year we were able to hatch over 35 monarchs for, you know, into, into butterfly. And it it's fantastic. And again, it's always that balance of, you know, the suburban neighborhood and everything is cut and it looks perfect. Well, not so much at my house. And, uh, <laughs> and although maybe my next door neighbor isn't so psyched, the people that walk by and I've got certified habitat by the um, National Wildlife Federation, which is, which is great and, and would recommend supporting them along with the pollinator partnership. And people always are walking their dogs and they stop and they're looking and they're seeing that they see the monarch, you know, and it's, it's awesome. I've really enjoyed that. It's a lot of fun. So on the perennial side. And remember, the one thing as far as perennials go, as, as you're well aware, when you are starting from seed, 
I can't stress enough the patience with that because from seed, they're normally not going to produce a flower in that first growing season. So it could take two to three years. But again, if you're patient, you can have those perennials there for 20, 30 years, you know, so that patience is really important when dealing with perennials from seed. But um, again, especially here in the Northeast with our cold winters, perennials tend to do extremely well. Right. And those perennials are the anchor plants for the meadow so that they don't look dead all the time. <laughs> like we have a really long, hot summer that most of the time, like your winter or our winter is what your spring looks like. So it kind of, the, the anchor plants are important because they'll be the first to start flowering in the new season when it does happen. So that's good. That's exactly, exactly correct. Yep. Yeah. Uh, American Meadows acquired, as you mentioned earlier, High Country Gardens a while ago. And those that company is more geared toward drought-tolerant climates like mine. What are some of the popular offerings from them? So, yes, we acquired High Country Gardens in 2016. And it was really, really exciting because... Um, we are still, as I mentioned to you, Christy, um, David Solomon, who was the founder of High Country Gardens um, and a pioneer in the horticultural industry. He is still working with us. He is our chief horticulturalist and continues to develop and evolve um, new plants and new plant material for High Country Gardens all the time. So he's continued to stay on board. So it's really, really exciting. And obviously, David, especially um, on the Agastaki side of perennials, he is like a pioneer there. So we continue to expand and, and those continue to be some of the more popular varieties that we sell there on the high country garden side of, of the, uh, of, of the company. And, and it's just, it's really fun to have him continue to be involved with the brand. And again, continuing to develop this new plant material every year. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. And their stuff is beautiful and they have particularly, I think I point to client, I point clients to them for their lawn alternatives. Cause they're, you know, everyone still wants a lawn and we get less, we got maybe four inches of rain last year. So it's really not a smart idea for where we live, but where you live, you probably get what 50 inches of rain a year, something like that. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> so when, you know, I, I like pointing people in the direction of those lawn alternatives, but they also have, you mentioned Agastaki and my, my next question is around that. It's actually a funny anecdote. I remember stopping by the American Meadows booth once at a conference and you weren't there, but I asked the gal behind the table about the botanical name for hyssop. And I said, okay, is it Agastache or Agastich? And she's like, Mike says Agastaki. <laughs> I was like, what? It blew my mind. Yeah. And so, you know, you've been in this business a long time, clearly. This, yeah. <clears throat> why are, why is the Latin misinterpreted so much and so variable in the way that it's pronounced? It's a great question. Um, I don't know if I'm going to have a great answer. <laughs> I don't uh, know because, that anyone does, but I figured yeah. I'd ask. <laughs> and I think, you know, I see it, obviously, because we deal with so many different types of plant material in Latin and botanical and all that. I mean, you take something as simple as lupin mm -hmm. and you get lupine, lupin. Uh, I mean, so I yeah. don't know. It's a great question, Chrissy. I, I don't know. It's it's funny because my landscape guy, we have this little battle because I call it liriope and he calls it liriope. And there's... They, yep. Pronounce both <laughs> sound that's the same. An, that's another good one. It's another great one. And yeah, I don't know if we'll ever figure that out, Christy. I I always keep an open mind and hey, I yeah. don't consider myself a botanical snob. So I am totally open to, you know, how the, the pronunciations, as long as I can make it out and kind of make the connection. Because again, especially dealing with a lot of direct to consumers, 
sometimes it does get lost in translation and I have to, you know, I, what did, what, what was that again? Can you Can write you that down? That? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So. Yeah. I have a, I have a colleague who is a master gardener and she said, so is it cotton Easter or catanister? And I'm like, I have no idea. Is that one yeah. you, do you have a, I don't even know what it is. No, I go with the latter. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. But see, yeah. Um, but again, what's right. I don't know. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, you know the the mystery continues yeah. all right so so what can people expect to find in your book mini meadows because it sounds like it's got some really good information yeah so was really excited writing that um with story publishing and carleen madigan she was awesome to work with it was it was a lot of fun but really kind of a step-by-step introductory on how to be successful in creating a meadow Again, getting back to how I define a meadow when you don't you know, need that sprawling acreage, you can do it in a small space container, a couple hundred square feet if you want. Um, but getting into kind of the tips and the do's and don'ts, really identifying some of the, the, the more common mistakes people make and hopes that we, we identify and address those. Um, and then going to some, um, hopefully some inspiring um, types of mini meadows, whether it's drought tolerant, wet meadow, uh, planting for pollinators, kids gardening, all that kind of stuff. So um, hopefully you, you'll you find it interesting and fun. Again, it's it's a quick read. It's kind of a coffee, what they call a coffee table style book, but um, really kind of getting into just kind of the basics, you know, to inspire the masses. It sounds like there are some great themes in there that people can run with. Yes, exactly. Yep. Well, it is tip time. Do you have a favorite tip, perhaps, from your book that you'd like to share with the garden nerd audience? There are. Um, I'll probably <laughs> rattle off a number of them. Okay, go so, for it. Tip number one is don't let the ear temperature fool you when you know when spring rolls around. And what I mean by that is, and this is probably a little geographic um, biased, but here in the Northeast, as we've talked about, we have very long winters, six months, seven months, cold. We get sick of them come April. So that first warm day in April and it's 70 degrees, people are like, woohoo, it's time to go out and garden and they want to get their hands dirty. But you've got to be patient because it's not the air temperature, it's the ground temperature that will dictate a lot of our success when gardening. And just because you get that first warm day of the air temperature in the 60s or 70s, the ground temperature is still cold and it takes a while for it to warm up. Think of it as a large body of water. You wouldn't go jump into the lake in April because the ground temperature is 70 because the ocean is still going to be very cold. So I think that's tip number one. Don't be fooled by that. Um, And as you grow and your knowledge of gardening grows, understand the ground temperature and how important that is for the success, especially if you are sowing seed and whether it's meadow seed or veggie gardens, soil temperature is so critical for germination, et cetera. So I think that is my tip number one. Mm -hmm. I think my tip number two is we love the enthusiasm of new gardeners and we want to get our hands dirty and we want to dive into that veggie garden or the mini meadow, whatever, but I think is my tip is set the proper expectation and there's nothing wrong with maybe starting small and learning first in what does and doesn't work as you, especially if you're new and then you can always expand as the years go by so i think in my experience is again we get a lot of new and novice gardeners to american meadows and they're all anxious and they're excited and they tend to bite off a little bit more than they realize as far as a gardening project and then come middle of the summer life gets in the way and we're busy and 
all that weeding that we thought we were going to do or all that maintenance has just gone by the wayside. And sometimes we're setting ourselves up to fail, you know, just because we were too ambitious. So I always tell people, you know, not always, but like, just warn them like, Hey, I love the idea that you've got three acres and you want to do it all a meadow, but maybe you want to start smaller and just bite off, you know, a, a smaller area first, mm-hmm. see how it goes, see how you like it. And then we could always expand down the road instead of trying to do it all at once. And then ultimately saying, man, you know, my garden failed because, and I, you know, when we get, we start peeling the onion back and it's like, well, I didn't weed. I thought it was going to weed and I didn't bother watering and all, you know, and it's like, well, that's kind of part of what you have to do to be successful. So I think to, you know, to sum that up is just, there's nothing wrong with starting small and learning as you go and then always expanding um, because I think you're going to enjoy it a little more because my goal is always to try to get you hooked and become a gardener for life, you know, and um, always striving for that. So I'm going to back up for a second to uh, sowing seeds. Cause I know here where we get fall rains and through winter, uh, that's our rainy season. Yeah. So we tend to, I tend to recommend scattering seeds for those annuals and perennials, you know, around the yard in fall, right, but right before the rains are going to hit. And, but you having snow and hard frost and all of that kind of stuff, do you recommend that? Or do you usually tell people to put things in as spring rain after the thaw and when spring rains hit? That's a great question, Christine. I will recommend there's the two most popular times of sowing seed, meadow flowers, et cetera, are spring and fall. Now, I do think what I am going to recommend will vary depending on where you are in the country. Mm-hmm. So for your area, especially, you're exactly correct. Fall, because again, to, especially to take advantage of those rains, mm-hmm. fall is the ideal time to be sowing in your re- geographical area. In the Northeast, I think springtime is a little safer um, given how hard our winters can be. Um, but do I, do people in the Northeast do fall plantings? Yeah, absolutely. It can be a little more challenging because, again, when it's 20, 30 below zero, it can be challenging sometimes for those seeds to be to survive. But fall or spring, definitely the two most popular times for success with selling directly. And, again, it will just vary depending on where you are in the country, as far as when I might recommend you do that. So, right. And uh, another question, I'm so curious because there, are there any wildflower seeds that need that, um, scarification or that kind of harsh winter in order to germinate? Um, yeah, there, there definitely are. And that again, will play into the recommendation as far as the species. And if they have chosen something, Mm-hmm. Um, that might need scarification or vernalization, right? Stratification, yeah. vernalization, um, all of those things. <laughs> yeah, we would identify that and try to give them the best, um, set them up for the best chance to succeed. In most cases, with ours, in assuming they are going to direct sow, it may the cold stratification may just happen naturally by putting the seed down on the ground versus having to do some, you know, trying, especially if I'm dealing with a novice gardener, trying to explain to them that, well, you're going to want to put it in the refrigerator for 30 days and then take it out for 30 days. That can be a little overwhelming. Yeah. So I may go just the natural route to say, hey, there, you know, explain what cold stratification is and tell them, hey, yes, you're going to want to sow those in the fall. They're going to lie dormant. They're going to break dormancy naturally. And it'll be a couple of years, something along those lines. So, but yeah, that certainly is important getting back to wanting to set them up to succeed identifying the flowers that may be in your mixture that you've chosen to purchase and identifying if there are any varieties in that mix that need special, you know, require special germination. So great. 
Well, thanks so much for that series of expert tips. Uh, and really, thank you for being a guest on the Gardener Tip of the Week podcast. You are very welcome, Christy. This was fantastic and uh, happy spring. Yeah. So how do people find you? You can, so AmericanMeadows.com, HighCountryGardens.com, and LandrisSeed.com. You can follow me directly at Mike underscore the seed man on Instagram, and I'm on Facebook as well, too. And um, you can always, if you have further questions, you can email me at Mike at AmericanMeadows.com. All right, garden nerds, you'll find a link to American Meadows and High Country Gardens on GardenNerd.com this week. We'll also share their social media feeds and a nifty video featuring Mike in one of his meadow projects. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at GardenNerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under GardenNerd1 and Facebook as GardenNerd.com. And of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening.